This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Greetings and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode, as usual, are Todd Truffin, that's me, and Ken Moorfield. That's me. This is episode number 21 for August 2012. Our topic for this episode is Vertigo, the 1958 film by director Alfred Hitchcock. This episode is not a spoiler-free discussion. If you have not yet seen the film, well, go out and do it. So, Ken, why are we talking about Vertigo? Well, the primary reason that prompted it was the 2012 Sight and Sound poll in which uh, they survey both critics and film directors, and in the critics' poll... Vertigo finally replaced Citizen Kane as the top-ranked movie of all time by the film critics. It was ranked seventh by the film directors, and that may be worth talking about. So that got the film a lot of buzz, and I think we wanted to look at it again to see if it was the best movie of all time. And if it was... Uh, what that had to say about issues of religion, faith, and spirituality in the best movie of all time. So, we've got this list. At least in my lifetime, Citizen Kane has always been held up as the pinnacle of filmmaking. And now, Sight and Sound, and we might want to say who who makes up Sight and Sound, um, have relegated it to number two, and elevated Vertigo to number one. Do we have any idea why? Well, I let me backtrack a second. I would say, first of all, it's not as though Sight and Sound had done it, because that makes it sound as though it's their critics or the editorial policy of the magazine. They pull the critics. And, right. uh, you know, I'll put a link on the webpage that has some information about the magazine. It's a very well-respected cinephile sure. magazine out of Great Britain, and... Uh, you know, the critics who participate in the poll are not Johnny Come Lately's. Right. Uh, they're well-respected film critics. So I think the reasons for it replacing them are as various as the critics who would end up voting in there. Uh, I've seen a couple of responses that say sometimes changes of the rules uh, mm -hmm. can have a big effect. Uh, there was a lot of ink spilt over the fact that in the previous votes, critics were allowed to vote for The Godfather Part 1 and Part 2 as one movie. Okay. And this time they weren't. So The Godfather went from the top 10, I think, being 7th to 21 and 34. But if you add the two of them together, uh, it would be back in the top 10. The cynic in me says sometimes critics get a little bit bored. <laughs> no one ever made a critical reputation by saying, yeah, me too. Right. Uh, so uh, someone always wants to take a corrective posture and say, hey, I saw something or I noted something or I was influential in changing something. 
there can be changes in the values uh, and reputations of particular films. I know at least one of the critics on Sight and Sound, or one of the critics on the Sight and Sound poll, had reported that his procedure for picking the top 10 was to take the top 50 films, in his opinion, and just pull 10 of the names at random each time the poll was there uh, because he didn't think that you could list or make a distinction between 1 through 50 in there. So there's an element of randomness or chance. Uh, Certainly as some critics get older and die and are replaced by other critics who are younger, you'll get differences in taste. And I think this, you know, really raises an interesting issue in terms of these kinds of lists. Um, and, and even not just lists, but kind of the canon. I know, you know, being literature scholars, we can certainly point to various authors who at one point were not considered to be worth studying, and then through various campaigns or various changes in taste, people look back and say, no, that William Blake, he really was pretty good. Um, so there is certainly a shift um, that happens, I think, over time. That 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 canard about standing the test of time might might shift and change. Um, and I guess you know this. Uh, we we in the pre-show we talked a little bit about just what is the value of a list um, or lists like these. You, know, you mentioned you you make lists for your blog, right? Um, uh, and that, and so I guess we can start talking about that. Yes, I have a lot of ambivalence about the list. I do it. I try to, in my annual top 10, emphasize more so each year that these are my personal favorites, Mm -hmm. not necessarily the movies that I think are objectively, quantifiably the best, because I'm increasingly skeptical that the word best can be meaningfully defined in a film context. Uh, that will allow me to rank films that are good or excellent uh, to the degree in which I'm comfortable saying, no, eight and a half is number 10 and the Battleship Potemkin is number 11, or uh, this film is marginally better than that. Uh, A lot of times in the last few years I've said, okay, these top four or five I could interchange uh, as I've tracked them throughout the year. Mm Mm-hmm. I have two ambivalent feelings about less. I guess this is what we got out in, in the pre-show. There's one part of me that looks somewhat suspiciously at the list from a religious or spiritual perspective because there's a part of me that, that says I think that really ties into a, uh, a platonic or a neoplatonist impulse uh, that suggests there's this platonic idea of the perfect film. And the critic is the person who says, okay, this is has close this film gets closer to the platonic ideal of the perfect film more so than any other and i'm not sure if that platonic ideal exists so that's the part of me that that is somewhat suspicious the part of me that is maybe a little bit more sanguine about the list uh, suggests that as protestants or people from a protestant tradition we've tended to get away from the reality or the truth of corporate wisdom, we tend to have 
our, our notion that the critic is a latter-day Martin Luther attacking his 95 <laughs> thesis against the wall and saying everyone else is wrong, but here I, I have gotten it right. And so I do think that there is an element from a religious perspective or a faith perspective uh, that has often said corporate wisdom can guard you against excesses in error, your mm-hmm. own errors, um, your own blind spots, and that in many ways the wisdom of a body of believers or an educated body of believers can be stronger or better than any individual if you're willing to accept it or submit it as such, uh, submit to it as such. Uh, I'm a Protestant, you know, I'm, I'm not a Catholic, so I don't know that, and I'm also, I'm also born in a postmodern age, so I don't know how much I've ever really experienced that faith in corporate wisdom in my own life. I've, I've grown up with very conflicting ideas about corporate wisdom. Too many Cooks spoil the broth. Right. Uh, too much red tape and bureaucracy uh, to cut through. And, you know, I tend to have more confidence in my own judgment than the judgment of a group of people, however educated that they are, because we always think that our own judgments are stronger or better than those of other people. As I've gotten older and begin to really think about in the last year or two about judgments of taste versus judgments of quality and try to see how my own preferences are tied in part for my judgments of taste and not insisting that, okay, just because I value this highly, do I think that it's necessarily better and being okay with that? I've been a little bit more open to the corporate wisdom, but I'm still not quite ready to submit myself to the notion of, oh, okay, the 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 wisdom of the body of critics or the academy, uh, such as it is, somehow or another, is better than my own wisdom because I'm still too much of a postmodernist who's like, well, how did the academy get formed? Exactly. So. Um, I, I'm, I was very interested in your kind of reporting of the one critic who said he had his top 50 and just would randomly pick because that's still, you know, there's still a top 50. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's still that broad stroke of saying, yeah, maybe we can't identify one, two, and three, but we can certainly say these 50 films are somehow objectively better than the bottom 50. And... And it, you know, you're talking about the, you know, the, the corporate wisdom get, you know, gets me, you know, the old, the Christian councils going back to the first, you know, the few centuries right after Christ, who nailed down, in some sense, we could say the, the broad strokes, you know, these, these are the things that it means to be a Christian. And here's the outline, you know, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Um, certainly then as time developed, we get that, you know, the Protestant movement, and I think it's interesting that we move from councils to people. It's Luther. It's Calvin. Um, and even though they they had lots of people behind them, we still identify with them, um, right. as opposed to you know the Nicene Council. Um, that's kind of an interesting. Thing. And I, and you know you mentioned you mentioned that you you're born in a postmodern age. You're also born in America, right? Um, and that that hyper individualistic, yeah, I am too. Um, that hyper individualistic sense of I am my own man. 
um, and I will stand um, independently. Um, I think you know, it does feed into that you know, that interesting tension that I you know that the ambivalence that you're talking about. I mean, I feel it too. Um, I, I find myself really feeling a certain affinity for the the gentleman that would you know he has no problem you know saying here here's a top group. Um, but trying to figure out what's the best film, you know, I, I think is, I mean, I find myself thinking that's a, a fruitless exercise. Well, do we need to? I mean, I get, well, that's exactly, I guess that's where I'm getting. I guess it's human nature that there has to be a hierarchy. There has to be a right. number, there has to be a number one. And certainly I would think as, you know, if, as we start thinking, you know, you had alluded to the fact that there is there is actually two lists from Sight and Sound. There's the critics list and a director's list, and that gets kind of interesting. But I think as just consumers of film, I mean, there's so much film out there. I think one thing that filmgoers look to critics for is kind of a a certain amount of guidance and winnowing. Um, you know, saying okay, there are you know how many hundreds of films are released every year. Um, what's worth my time? Now, obviously, there are certain big blockbuster films that have, be, you know, we kind of call them critic proof. I mean, the person that's going to go see, I don't, you know, the Avengers is going to see the Avengers, whether a critic says it's good or bad. Um, but maybe in, you know, some of the the middling range, or even some of the, the the films that folks might not normally go to, the critic can say, "Hey, here's a really good film." And that that might you know, that might be a function for these lists. Yeah, well, I have I have two thoughts, two or or, or maybe three, um, but not four. <laughs> well, <laughs> four by the time we're done. Matthew Arnold's The Function of Criticism at the Present Time. It's worth a read because it's it's a lot of really good analytical thought about well, what is the function of the critic, right? And not just what has the critic done historically or. Uh, something like that. He makes an argument that part of the critic's job is to do that winnowing. And then I wonder then to the extent that we eschew the hierarchy and, you know, don't make the list to sort of say, well, we're going to be more democratic if we eschew part of our role as a critic. If you're not going to do that, then you're just one more person with an opinion. Right. Um, See, now I've already gone from four to one and, you know, I've forgotten what the other (laughs) ones were. Oh, well... You know, you had mentioned some affinity with, okay, I've got that group of 50 uh, and making the broad strokes. I was just thinking in literature, it's always easier to expand the canon than it is to winnow it down or or limit it. I mean, we were, uh, I was in graduate school in the 90s when... The canon got officially expanded by great books, dropping some dead white European males and uh, adding some more diverse authors. And I think there's there's a kind of pragmatism about the whole exercise, which is to say it doesn't matter what a group of critics say. If a group of critics, you know, don't put in the godfather or citizen kane people are still going to watch citizen kane yeah uh maybe maybe i i don't know but there's also that sense of which there are going to be 
ones that we exclude because, well, no one watches that anymore. No one reads that anymore. There are texts like Ulysses that no one ever reads right. and yet somehow maintain their critical reputation in an untouchable way. I do think there's a little bit more in film of it, maybe because it's less of an investment of time or that film might be more accessible to certain people uh, that some viewers are willing to give something a chance to use the critic as, as a, saying I'm going to, as a roadmap for mm-hmm. discovery, I'm still going to make my, my own judgment, but uh, I will go check this out or take a look at this because it's got a, a sense of a, a critical reputation behind it. Right. And maybe that's where the modern tension lies between the corporate ri- wisdom and the individual wisdom because I don't see a lot of viewers, even amongst critics, and I certainly don't see a lot of popular viewers, who are able, who are willing to say, oh man, I hated this movie, but it's got a really good critical reputation, so what am I missing? Maybe I've got to try it again. Maybe I've got to look at it mm-hmm. again. Um, I think they're willing to say, hey, this got a really good reputation, so I, you know, I will look at it. But I'm not going to let my judgment be guided by that reputation. If I didn't like it, sure. I'm going to insist that there's nothing there. I've tried to find a middle ground, there's, and that's helped me. I mean, I, certainly my initial exposure to someone like Robert Brisson, who I think was 16th on the list with Ahazard Baltazar. I've tried to watch Ahazard. Zard Baltazar three times, and I still don't. It, it always leaves me cold. Um, but that certainly then was a stepping stone toward watching A Man Escaped or Pickpocket or Largent or, you know, some other Brisson movies that I've actually gotten a lot out of and that I never would have explored or gotten if I wasn't able to say, hey, some group of people whom... I respect, even if I don't replace their judgment with mine, see something in this that I don't. Right. Now, maybe to bring this back to Vertigo, that that creates an interesting question, which is, I've seen Vertigo. I've seen Vertigo multiple times. Exactly. Um, What do I then do if the body of people say, this is the greatest movie of all time, Uh, how many times do I rewatch it? We just rewatched it today. Uh, before I say either, I guess my options are, they're right and I agree, I disagree, but they must be right, and I just can't see it, I disagree and they must be wrong, uh, are the, the are those my only three options? Is there another option? Well, I think a fourth option would be kind of what we've been talking a little bit about here, is that the whole concept of ranking these things is silly, and we can agree it's one of the best films but I, I, I refuse to get pulled into the ranking business. Um, I guess that could be a fourth option. Okay, so where are you? I mean, is, is, is Vertigo the greatest film of all time? No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I... So you know better than the, <laughs> the panel of experts at Sight and Sound. Apparently. Although I find myself more leaking towards that, that, that fourth option. Um, I mean, I can't... You know, having watched it, is it a great film? Yes. You know, it is certainly 
you know, there's much to praise it for, and it certainly has me thinking about some deep ideas. Um, and it, it was fun to watch. I mean, it, it's an entertaining story. So, I mean, we start thinking about all these things that film is supposed to do. Tell a, Well, I like a film with a story. I think you do, too. Yeah. And really good acting performances, interesting cinematography. Um, I thought the music was a little heavy-handed, but... I mean, there are all these things that we could say, yeah, it's great. Is it the greatest? Uh, for me, it was a little too confused. You know, well, can you tease that out a little bit? And, well, yes. Um, as, we're, as we're watching the film, I mean, there's lots of interesting ideas that, that the film seems to be raising. There's this interesting idea about identity. You know, what makes a person a person? And what do we do with a person who's trying to manipulate another person and change that person? Think, you know, toward the end of the film, that the Judy character says, "If if I let you change me, will you love me?" Um, you know, that's a that's a deep question. That's a deep issue. Um, you know, in terms of human relationships and spiritual development mm -hmm. too. Of you know, what are we saying about our willingness to allow another person to mold us because we want to be loved? Um, and I, I don't think that is something that only a few people wrestle with. Mm -hmm. So there are some of these deep questions. Uh, my problem was is that it would I, I felt that the film was would raise these questions, maybe play with them a little bit, but then discard them or just move on to the next thing without really fully exploring. I'm not I'm not asking for answers, but at least an exploration. Whereas I think some of a film some certain films that I might think are better or greater, or whatever, um, I think do a better job of that. All right, I'll, I'll buy that. I guess there's a part of me, I well, all right, to answer my own question, do I think Vertigo is the greatest film of all time? No. I'm not sure that it's my favorite Hitchcock film. I don't know that I think it's right. the... <laughs> I don't think it's the greatest Hitchcock film. Uh, the greatest Hitchcock film of all time. I probably think Psycho is a better film. Uh, although people don't like the ending of that. and I think there's an argument to be made. I like Notorious, uh, which I think is an exploration of some of the same themes. But then that gets into matters of taste mm -hmm. uh, versus matters of quality. I think you had talked about asking questions and, and not wanting answers. I not answers. Well, not needing answers. I guess I do need answers. And I maybe I don't need answers from the film in a pat mm -hmm. sort of way, in, in a Christian film sort of way of like, here are the questions, here are the answers. God is the answer. But there is a part of me, oh dear, do I want to go there? I guess I do. That, that says I need for there to be answers, even if the film can't articulate them perfectly because right now we see through a glass darkly uh, now sure. uh, now we see imperfectly because we're finite and there are transcendent truths that we only get glimpses of i am it is an article of faith with me that the answers are there mm -hmm. and vertigo may flirt a little too much with me with a kind of 20th century existential despair or meaninglessness or lack of transcendent truth. Uh, I certainly don't think that it's 
necessarily a nihilistic film. It doesn't talk a lot about God being there, but to the extent that its themes are developed, I'm not sure that I like the answers that it's pointing at. Okay. I, um, I guess, in, and I would say there's maybe two big questions that, that I would tease that out. Well, maybe three. Uh, one is this question of can we change? Right. Is human nature malleable or changeable? For me as a Christian, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Although outside of divine intervention, no. I mean, I mean, so maybe my answer is no in a finite closed system, but there is this transcendent power that has the capability of changing us. There seems to be this thematic stuckness in the film. There's such an emphasis at the beginning in the first scene post-preface where they're talking about vertigo and establishing the ground rules right. that says, this will never go away. I will always have this. And the last scene, it goes away, or it appears to go away, either because he's distracted and he's not thinking, or psychologically he finds the answer, the key to Well, there is that part in that opening scene where the uh, midge yes. says she had talked to her doctor, and, and basically the doctor had said it would take another psychological shock. Okay. And he, but... The doctor didn't think it would work. Okay. But the, the possibility was set out. The gun was put on the mantelpiece. All right. So thematically and psychologically, uh, as with the, the gothic kind of plot, there is a rationalistic exp- exactly. you know, a rationalistic explanation. And maybe that's a glimmer of hope for me in that... Maybe I want to, I'm not convinced, but maybe I want to go with Hitchcock as a Catholic here as in Psycho is undercutting some of the 20th century conviction in science and that we know so very clearly and understand so very patly with all kinds of certainty, things that we don't really know anything about. We just adopt this scientific language in in, in a fallacy of explaining by naming we give something a name vertigo can, and therefore we yeah. think that we understand it well and but, even the suggestion by the doctor is like well it's gonna take some shock right what is that i mean well and and but even then i mean from a larger thematic perspective of something like well what's the greater emotion right love or fear mm-hmm. or love or anger or love or hatred i i, I tend to think that the things that enable us to change and transcend uh, the internal things that hold us back are usually the things that liberate us from fear and not give us enough adrenaline, whether it's right. anger or shock or whatever, uh, to momentarily forget them. Now, again, yeah. some people might say at the end of the film, there's no implication that he's been cured of his vertigo. He's standing on the precipice, looking down into the pit, and he may be about to dive in or fall in, or he may have a momentary freedom from that, but he has in in no ways been cured. But then that would be a very cynical or you know or dark. Yeah, uh, it, the, the sense of the film is to me seems that he's cured at the end. Yeah. Well, now part of something that you said there that was interesting is that love. You know, what role does love play in? you know, this healing thing, which I certainly think part of the Christian message, mm-hmm. part of the gospel message is that love is is vital. You know, for God so loved the world that he did these things. Um, and love in this film is really problematic and in some ways just tossed aside, um, which I think is 
you know, again, it, it, it's pointed to that adrenaline rush to cure things as opposed to something, you know, more stable. Well, there's obsession. I don't know that we ever actually see love in it's traditionally thought of altruistic sense. I mean, some people may point at Midge as being uh, the woman who's patiently waiting, but Scotty is obsessed with Judy and right. remake him. I mean, if you get that traditional notion of love being caring for another person more than you care for yourself, putting someone else's uh, needs above one's own, uh, laying down your life right. uh, for... Uh, you know, a friend or a lover. Uh, Scotty definitely seems to have a, a an obsession with Madeline. And, Madeline, yeah, and then seems to really want to be using Judy even before he sees the necklace and puts two and two together. Right. In a utilitarian sense, I mean, he's like, well, now I'm going to be free of the past. Sure. You're, you know, you're, you're going to help release me. Um, Judy says that she loves him, uh, that, that was the problem. She wasn't right. supposed to fall in love. She was, she was in on the con and she got the money, but she wasn't supposed to fall in love and she would go away, but she hopes that she can find some way of getting him to love her for her. Right. Uh, I was also very much disturbed from maybe a Christian standpoint or just a, a humanistic standpoint. The implication at the end is that she has to die, that she has participated right. in some way. I mean, the symbolic value of them being in the bell tower and having the shadowy figure, which is the nun, uh, spook her into jumping off seems to suggest there's this divine retribution. Right. They can't be together. He can, there's no forgiveness. He can't forgive her. He can only use her to be free. Uh, she can't forgive herself. She is participated in this way but scotty himself never seems to be called to account for the things that he's done or the errors mm -hmm. that he's done the one place where he is called to account is in the human court or the inquest right and of course that's for something he didn't do she was already dead uh but even the the judge at the inquest is talking about well he allowed a colleague to fall to his death. Well, that wasn't really his fault. I mean, he was hanging. What was he supposed to do? Yeah. Um, we, the law has little to say about things that are left undone. So Scotty is uh, a victim and, or, you know, there's some sort of gesture toward human law and human judgment versus divine judgment, which uh, you know, which doesn't forget. I'm I'm not quite seeing. Yeah. Well, that, and that's one of those areas where I do find the film confusing. Right. Um, you know, Scotty was fully willing to commit adultery. Right. Um, you know, he falls in love with Madeline, the wife of his friend, and you know he doesn't seem to have any problem with that. Um, and yet, you know, both of the women die, uh, and he's left there, a lot. You know, seemingly unpunished. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it it is confusing, I think, and also alone. I mean, yeah, there, there doesn't seem to be grace anywhere in no. the movie in in terms of uh, forgiveness. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's a very Old Testament conception of the church with the non, where the twentieth century can only really conceptualize God and the church as 
an instrument of just uh, an instrument of justice or punishment, mm. not as an instrument of transcendence to help the broken or the trap or the prisoner be free of this thing that is uh, haunting him right. or, or, or keeping him down. I was also somewhat uh, put off a little bit by the famous scene in the forest uh, where they look at the rings of the trees, the, the redwood trees, uh, and there's a landmarker in the, I think it's Redwood National Forest, but it's... Uh, uh, it could be, I, I know I was at Muir Woods several years ago and it had a similar... Muir Wood or thing. whatever, and it's got one of the, the giant trees that have been cut down and then the rings of the trees have markers for corresponding to human events and... Uh, Kim Novak uh, puts her puts her thumb uh, on the tree and says, you know, "Here I was born," and then moves it a centimeter and says, "Here I di- Here I died," and uh, it was only a moment for you. Uh, well, that's the the language of the Old Testament of Ecclesiastes. Sure, um, you know, Ecclesiastes says uh, that our lives are hebel, which is Hebrew for breath. You know, our lives are but you know, but a breath. Um, you know, are fragile, are unsubstantial. But of course, she's not talking to God or measuring her life against the eternal. Uh, she's measuring her life against a slightly longer span, uh, which is the nine hundred years or however long one of these trees, trees grows. Yeah. Uh, you know, a thousand years. And says it was a moment for you, but there's no place in which that relationship between her and the trees points us to a higher ideal of the relationship between the tree towards a transcendent eternal. Right. Where that's just a, you know, uh, where that's just a breath. So that's part of what I mean by that kind of existential melancholy. It's, it's funny that Scotty is diagnosed as having melancholia because there was famous film last year by Lars von Trier called Melancholia, Melancholia. uh, which I think would be a a wonderful and apt companion piece Hmm. to Vertigo and which also seems to me to be pessimistic and despairing. Uh, I guess all the Von Trier fans, this is Ken, so you can send your hate mail to me. (laughs) (laughs) But seems to be pessimistic and despair. I mean, there's, okay, there's a Hemingway-esque, like, nobility of whistling in the face of your own imminent lack of existence. But there's no real firm conviction that there is a hope of salvation either in this world or... I don't see in melancholy the possibility uh, of the next one. And that really, you know, I it's hard for me to not read that back into Vertigo and then perhaps maybe read it into the larger list and say, okay, it's somewhat disturbing to me to say if this is reflective of the highest achievement of our culture – well, what does that say about the zeitgeist of the, you right. know, uh, of the culture where, you know, we kind of have a melancholia and the thing that we applaud the most is the one that admits, oh, okay, we are, you know, we are very dark or we are very pessimistic about 
you know, the possibility well, of we look in the mirror and we like to see ourselves. Um, yeah, and and that, and that kind of brings in you know yet another purpose perhaps of these lists, especially looking at them over time, is to from a kind of a cultural studies per point of view to say you know what what are these lists saying about us? Mm -hmm. um, not just that this is the art that is being made, but this is the art that we value, and um, and you know and how do those shifts then in what is in the top ten or the top five? Um, over time, you know, say about where we're at. Uh, yeah. Well, so then it might be, if I can tease out this thought a little bit, it, it might be worth looking at that comparison between the critics list and the director's list. Because when I think about Vertigo, and for that matter, when I think about Citizen Kane, mm -hmm. really Citizen Kane says at the end that there is a kind of fatalism that we are all prisoners to our past to our right. childhood uh, you know to our environment and vertigo seems to say that as well uh, i mean perhaps from a, a spiritual perspective where i buckled the most is um you know when they're at the mission and she's running away to set up the you know to set up the murder and the al alibi and he says no one possesses you you know, and she keeps repeating over and over again. It's too late. It's too late. Right. You know, maybe there was freedom or autonomy to choose one time, and that's part of what I mean about there's there doesn't seem to be any vehicle for grace. But I've right. made an error. I've made a mistake, or someone else has done something in the past, and now I am a prisoner uh, to my fate, and there's no way to get out of it. And that's part of what I mean. I I love and I esteem Hitchcock. But it seems to me that his films, the world that he creates in his films, are these labyrinthian traps that people try to escape from, and not to be cute by echoing Sartre, but there is no escape, yeah. you know, right? And in, in many ways, there's no escape in Citizen Kane, right? You know, it's like, well, the key to understanding the man is understanding the childhood, and maybe at one time in a... Lakeian way, there was innocence, you know, right. and there was purity, but by the time he gets older, that, you know. Well, yeah, and, and this is the reflection we see in even our, our criminology of the day. Of mm -hmm. we, we, we want those, surely the criminal must have had something bad happen to them mm -hmm. in their childhood, which led to, you know, and certainly I'm thinking that, you know, we've, you know, various shootings that have gone around the country, and everyone's wanting to know, how did this person get that way? Right. Um, there's got to be an explanation. And there's a lot of overlap between the two lists, but the directors have Tokyo Story and 2001, A Space Odyssey at the top, which seem to me to allow for a little bit more uh, human interaction, mm -hmm. a little bit more emphasis. Now, you know, by the time you get down to number five and Taxi Driver, Apocalypse Now, uh, The Godfather... Uh, but there, there definitely seems to be in the directors, even with eight and a half, uh, a little bit more emphasis on movies that have at their center characters and characters who are existing in the now and making meaningful choices. Uh, whereas part of what I see is that pessimism 
or that fatalism of this movie is that there are no meaningful choices or if, yeah. to the extent that there are meaningful choices they're always in the past and we've always already made them before we were aware of what their implications are and we're all just you know or there's somebody else made a choice or, or someone else yeah there it, perhaps there was a meaningful choice for someone else but by it by that time were inheritors uh, of them and i think that um it's interesting to me that the critics like Sunrise at number five, The Passion of Joan of Arc at number nine, there seems to me to be this tension between this fatalistic pessimism and a lauding of directors or visionaries who will you know, face that. And yet a, a revering of certain films that dare to have hope and dare to mm-hmm. say or project, even if it is projected in the past in this mythic Joan of Arc context or uh, you know, a film like Sunrise to say, no, actually it is possible to escape that. Um, I, I don't know how familiar you are with Sunrise, but I mean, I you know, it, it, the central episode at the end is... Yeah, it would be awesome make a good companion piece, right, for Vertigo, because the central incident at the end is about a guy rowing a boat out to the middle of the lake to kill another person, and the argument, it's not too late, it's not too late, it's, it's not too late, you haven't done something, and yet finding a way of somehow or another realizing, no, I can make a meaningful choice. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I, I am not trapped. Uh, you know, I'm not simply, uh, you know, a victim. And I wonder, you know, you're you're getting at this idea of choice, and I and I find it very interesting because a a trope in bad television, mm-hmm. um, especially in police procedurals that we that we love and we watch a lot of, is that you know the the person constantly saying I. I had no choice. I had no. T- I had to do this, mm-hmm. and and that seems to be. I, I can think of just all sorts of different places where that phrase gets used an awful lot, mm-hmm. um, both in art and even you know like with my students. Um, I had to do this, which kept me from turning in my paper on time. Um, you know, so from the mundane to whatever, um, that idea of I have no choice, mm-hmm. when in fact you do. Yeah, I mean, you do have a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we may feel that the consequences of doing one thing or the other may be too much for us to bear, but there is a choice. And, and I wonder, you know, something about the Zeitgeist here of that I have no choice. Well, so I, maybe this is a little too cheeky, and I promise it wasn't intended, but maybe that takes us back to the list and say making the list and responding to the list is the most human thing that there is because we as lovers of film want to say, oh, I have no choice. The canon was made by these people at Sight and right. Sound and they have said that Vertigo is number one and I, I, you know, I must bow to that. And I, they are doing the most fundamentally human thing, which is choosing. You know, they're choosing both what to watch and you know, what to esteem. And then their list is one that presents me with uh, a choice, you know, or with choices. Uh, do 
I go through and accept the worldview that's espoused in one thread of these films, or do I embrace the worldview and make an argument for this other thread of films? Uh, do I simply reject the list altogether and you know go off and uh, make my own list? Uh, but maybe that's part of why I'm, I'm, I'm never quite able to pick that option we talked about, about saying, well, lists are stupid and I'm right. going to go off and, and do them because that seems to me to be too much or too close to the critical parallel of the student. He says, well, I don't have any choice. You know, I've got to, you know, I just have to do this because someone else may, you know, uh, someone else made yeah, a choice the, the, for The us. choice is how do you interact with the list? You know, how do you interact? You know, these, these people have made a list. Right. Okay, what do you do with it? And and in some ways, I think that either of those poles of simply refusing to interact with it, that's easier. Yeah. But you lose something. And being slavishly devoted to it of saying, you know, this is a law or a rule or a canon or a choice that yeah. someone else has made that I have to... So it's the same error. ...is... is it, you know, is the same error, and it's the error of non-engagement, you right. know, which is to say at the end of the day, art is not math, and it, I hate to sound like a reader-response critic, but I am, so I might as well, well own, <laughs> own it. it. <laughs> it. Until we engage with the work of art, then it's nothing, you know, it's just a list that someone else has made and no different than... Uh, but once we engage on it, then part of what art does is that it creates an infinite variety of meanings as we interact with it individually and corporately. And so, you know, to the extent the lists prompt us to engage in Vertigo or Citizen Kane or, you know, any of the other films and engage with one another, uh, not just engage mm -hmm. with the artist in right. isolation... Uh, then I'll continue to think that it's a good thing, even if I don't think Vertigo is the best film of all time. Well, and this gets, I mean, this is also why Vertigo is a piece of art and not just a commercial product. Um, we have been able to engage and engage meaningfully about some ideas. Whether or not the film was perfect in its representation or gave us what we wanted, we were still able to engage. Yeah. Um, well, this feels like a great stopping place as we go to engage with more film. Anything else you'd like to say? Kim Novak is terrific. Uh, yes. I, I think each time that I've watched the film, I've come away more and more impressed by her performance. And and I would say, as just a side note, I did have two big things uh, watching this film again. Uh, one is that Hitchcock, like no other director I can think of, really knows how to present a woman on the screen and reveal this person to you and like just make you think, oh, there's an angel. Um, and also, I really want to know what happened to Midge. <laughs> I just, Midge fell off the screen and I was like, where'd Midge go? But So if anyone has <laughs> thoughts about what happened to Midge, send them to Todd at <laughs> filmgeekradio.com. Exactly. Well, thank you for listening to The Thin Place. If you have comments on this episode, um, please visit our website at www.filmgeekradio.com to leave a comment, or you can email us, us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also 
follow Ken and flame him on Twitter at Ken Morefield or at his blog, one, the number one, morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!